0: To an artist, it's not a matter of making paintings or objects at all. What we are really dealing with is the state of consciousness and the shape of our perceptions. So that's a quote by Robert Irwin, who is a key, key player in the light and space movement, which is the topic of our podcast today. And my name's Anthony DeMarzay, and with me is
1: Jackson Stigwood.
0: I think it's fair to say, Jackson, there's been a bit of a hiatus. There's been a bit of a a gap between our last podcast and this podcast. Can we give the listeners any indication as to why that's occurred?
1: Um, well, it's been, how long's it been? It's been January 10 was our last one that we posted, which was recorded last year. So, um, yeah, it's been uh, eight months. Um and I guess in that eight months, there's just been a lot of things that have, um, you know, we've been in and out of lockdown. I got caught in Queensland for a month. Um, you've been incredibly busy. Um, we we struggled to find... We didn't struggle to find a topic. We just... Um,
0: well, we it's probably my with a fault, wasn't topics. it? I, I found it a little bit difficult, but we're back. Yeah. We're back with a vengeance. We're not going <laughs> to let... Eight months go by between uh, between podcasts i think uh we really want to keep it going and we really in- i personally really enjoy the, the the uh the research that we're doing um yeah, so we we started off with the idea that we would research james terrell and that led to discovering the light and space movement which uh, has a n- number of key players involved in the movement. Um, people like Robert Irwin, um, Helen Pashkin, and I suppose the star of it is, uh, is James Terrell, but there's also other players, Larry Bell and um, Peter Alexander is another one. But um, I think today is, is, is really going to be an exploration of the light and space movement that emanated from California in the uh, very late nineteen fifties uh, through the sixties and um, into the seventies and early nineteen eighties. So um, perhaps if I start, unless you want to say something, uh, Jackson.
1: No, I think it's it's an interesting topic. It sort of, yeah. It started with one name and then we realised it was connected to a whole bunch of other names.
0: And it's and it's um. still continuing with uh, Oliver Ellison. He's uh, certainly taken the baton and and run with it in 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 more uh more recent times so let's see where we can start um so back in the 60s in the in california there was a loosely affiliated group of artists that were really taken by i guess they were really in love with the whole californian lifestyle the the light the surf um you know the, the the way in which uh the whole light in the whole that that uh, area of california in, in in los angeles was something that really was was really special to to a, to a group of people uh, helen Pashkin is someone who talks really vividly about her childhood about playing on the beach um, in the rock pools and watching how the light um, played with the with the the changing shape of the water and how it you know reflected and refracted uh, on the surface of the water and also in the surface below the water and that she spent hours and hours playing with that that sort of light and space as a child. Um, in New York, at the same time, you know, during the sort of sixties, there was a, a thing called minimalism happening. Um, people like Donald Judd were playing around with this, you know, with, with objects and repeated objects and, you know, the idea of minimalism and abstraction was sort of coming about. And so California had its own version that was a really, a play of light and space, which was largely ignored by the East Coast um, critics. It was sort of seen as a bit sort of lightweight and um, not, very, um, not very intellectually stimulating. Um, and it's really only been in perhaps more recent times that we've come to appreciate the light and space movement as, as being something more substantial than um, than what it was first considered. Mm.
1: It's an it's a interesting topic because I think there was lots of... In the same era that it sort of started, there was lots of experimentation with other industries around California. Um, so... There was a lot of the research talks about the space
0: industry. Yeah, so the space uh, industry was big, obviously, during the 60s. Mm. Um, Florida was where they launched rocket ships. Um, but Cape Canaveral. Cape Canaveral, yeah, that's right. Mm. But um, California was at the forefront of developing the technology that, that was ultimately related to the space race. So uh, a lot of these artists had ac- access to... New materials, resins, acrylics, um, fiberglass, all sorts of things, which, you know, oddly enough, relates nicely to surfing, um, and so they were kind of connected with these these new industries. Uh, lighting technology was also changing; uh, artificial lighting was also changing at that time. Um, so they were kind of these these individuals that were sort of, um, you know connected to the aeronautical industry through sort of by association a lot of materials were also coming um onto the market at that stage that had kind of been used um for wartime um adventures shall we say for wartime technology Mm. so they were suddenly getting their hands on to these new materials so rather than using paint and you know clay and stuff like that they were using materials that were as helen Pashkin would describe highly toxic um but would you know they had this kind of fluid um you know sort of uh oozing sort of uh quality about which would you know once set would play with the light in really interesting ways
1: so not only the materiality from the from this for the sort of the space industry and the um i suppose from military industries as well is i guess it those industries pair well with the change of perception as well um so you know the idea of going to space for the first time is a completely changes your perception of the world that we live in and what's possible yes and in
0: fact a lot of these artists were actually part of kind of workshops about you know what life in space would be like you know what a weightless body would actually feel like so um perhaps if we just talk a little bit about robert irwin who who stands sort of really important figure in in this whole movement um i mean they're all it's a loosely affiliated movement i don't think you could say they were a tribe or anything like that but um without going through his whole life story I, I the thing about robert Irwin is that he was very much a californian born and bred individual he describes his own background as happy you know his childhood as happy playing on the beach surfing uh dancing he became a good race um racehorse you know, betting on racehorses, He went to war, um, but he also became a painter mainly because he was, you know, quite artistically gifted as a as a student. So he did a lot of abstract sort of work in his early career, a bit like Jackson Pollock, you know, sort of stuff which was very kind of you know enthusiastic, you know, the stroke of the pen and all that sort of stuff. And he himself describes that early work as pretty bad. He he was actually quite embarrassed when he was first exhibited. So, he, he started on this quest to sort of understand what um, art was about. And he kind of uh, he did a whole lot of stuff where he played with lines on the canvas. He played with dots on the canvas. He was really interested in um, you know very abstract artists, which was which he viewed as being all about very pure emotion. and he did these, and there was a sort of turning point that I don't know if you read up on, um, Jackson, but he did a whole series of these very finely um, uh, configured dots on a canvas. And he spent hours and days on these dots. And it was these dots were kind of meant to sort of create a sort of energetic field across the canvas um, and you you know he describes the sort of hours that went into each dot of the color the position and so on and so forth and he sort of looked at it uh, the finished work and he looked at the shadow of the canvas on the wall and kind of had a eureka movement where he said basically the shadow around the canvas was more dominant than the The art that he had created (laughs) more interesting (laughs) so he sort of decided that the idea of the frame the picture frame the artistic picture frame was kind of irrelevant to art and he wanted to break out of the whole idea of capturing art on the canvas so what he did is he closed up his um, closed up his studio, he sold all of his equipment, and basically went into the desert and, and kind of immersed himself in a sort of um, a quest to sort of understand what art and experience is all about. And it was a real turning point for Robert Irwin in terms of his understanding of art. So he became what we might describe an environmental artist or a land artist, but he, he sort of then started to kind of develop this idea of art that doesn't have a clear set of boundaries because he basically believed that our lives, you know, the way we move in space, uh, the way we experience space, is not bound by the canvas. So where does that lead us to, uh, <laughs> Jackson? I think, he, yeah, he's,
1: he's looking into his artwork... Um, <laughs>
0: Yeah, it was super
1: interesting because he, out of, I mean, a lot of them deal with sort of architecture or like built spaces as well. But um, I really found some of his, his work to be profoundly different from the others in terms of its simplicity. Mm.
0: And so how he, it he he did a lot of stuff where he did like this beautiful cylinder or this beautiful um, uh, flat circle, sorry, not a cylinder which he floated away from the wall by about, I don't know, about a, I don't know, about a foot, you know, 300 millimetres. And then he shone lights onto it so that the shadow of the disc, you know, created this beautiful pattern on the wall. So the whole piece is, I mean, you could call it sculptural, but it's not really sculpture. It's, it's kind of just, it's, uh, it's this really beautiful play of light mm. and space. And even and
1: looking at a lot of his works for the first time, they felt familiar. Yes. And I think that's, that's from all of the people that have come right after him. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that and he has works. this amazing
0: um, legacy. He's a very, you know, he speaks a lot and encouraged a lot of other artists um, to be, to find their own, you know, he's a very generous, from what I can see, very generous individual. But this idea of art without a boundary... And the play of light, uh, and what he describes as conditional art, mm. um, becomes a more evolved idea as he progresses. His favourite material is this material called scrim, which is which like a screen, a screen, kind yeah. of a, isn't it? And it it's this play of light against the scrim, the shadows. The changing light against the scrim mm. is really beautiful so he's essentially takes away in his art the idea of the object and the subject mm. and plays with light and space yeah it's
1: completely dynamic as well like as a material it's it's different to glass because it, it, it captures light very well so when light actually hits it, you get a really strong intensity at certain areas and quite dark next to it if it's a shadow or something. He did and a
0: he did a beautiful job, a beautiful project. Sorry, in a place called Mafra, um, I can't remember exactly where it is, but it's sort of in a kind of desert sort of place in um, in the U.S. Mm. Where he took an abandoned building, uh, it was an old military building, I think, and basically changed the windows and. Well, not change them, he just kind of fixed them up and then rendered them. Rendered them, that's right. Sort of kind of created an abstract version of themselves and um, then, you know, lined the inside with a, a scrim, um, which then, you know, captured the light that was coming in in a variety of ways. So, in a sense, and then people were sort of taken through and around the space and experiencing essentially what we experience on a daily basis in, in our all our lives which is the effects of light and space um but he did it in a i guess a slightly more orchestrated way so he doesn't you know he's basically almost saying art is kind of irrelevant because we are sort of experience this stuff pretty much on a daily basis every day
1: and mm, a Anything in his earlier works, he sort of didn't like people taking photographs of his
0: work. That's right, yeah, because, because he, he felt he describes actually going to the desert and spending time in the desert and saying that you could take a photograph of the desert, but in reality, a photo doesn't actually capture um, the experience of being in the desert, it doesn't capture the sounds, it doesn't capture the, the temperature. You know it doesn't capture the the light in, in the way that you actually experience it when you're actually present there so he's trying to work out how you replicate experience through some kind of artistic medium and if you think about it you know the play of light against a wall or a scrim or whatever for a, a critic there's not a lot to go with, is there? There's not a lot to criticise. It's just sort of, you know, what we already experience.
1: Yeah, definitely. And um, another interesting work that he completed was the gallery, which gave him the the room that sort of looked out over the water. Um, I found that really
0: interesting. So just to describe what that was, yeah. I, I can't remember where that is. It's um, it's across. It's basically a, a gallery which was set on the first floor. I can't remember the location. I'm sorry but um and uh there were these windows looking out to the sea um which and the window the glass was slightly tinted and so what he did is he simply cut out shapes or sorry cut out squares from the window so you get direct light so you could see the contrast between the tinted light coming through the window and the clear view to the outside and he rather uh, he describes um uh the situation where his mother goes to visit the art and the mother is telling someone about the exhibition and she says, Look, don't bother because there's nothing there <laughs> which <laughs> Robert <laughs> Irwin sort of appreciates the that you know, he's his mother doesn't think much of his art, I think.
1: Yeah. But it was interesting how someone portrayed it as that because the space i mean you really need to see a picture of it it's just this amazing sort of outlook with these sort of band of windows that go around you know sort of a medium height space and it just looks out over to this beautiful beach with palm trees and rocks and everything and yeah what he's done is just cut squares into the existing glass which um yeah his i think description was at a the space was so beautiful that the only thing you could make it better was to take something away, <laughs> and they but by doing that also bringing in the air from outside yeah. into the space, which can change. And I suppose you would have got sound from the space as sound well. Sound from the space. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's just really interesting. It's like here's your space as an artist. Do whatever you want in here. And
0: so he really takes the gallery space as his canvas. He doesn't put a canvas into. The space he's Mm. actually turning the architecture the existing space into an installation so and he's he describes that sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't work Um, but it's this idea that he sits within the space and he creates a kind of he notices the light he notices the air and he'll do some intervention some fairly subtle intervention within that space to make the viewer appreciate the light, the air, the environment that you're in that much more. Mm. kind of
1: makes me think about a lot of spaces these days that are over-designed and they (laughs) they could possibly use with a similar treatment.
0: And there is a tendency towards minimalism. There is this tendency to just simply appreciate the grandeur of light, the, the sort of bigness of daylight, he does play with artificial light as well. He's more mm. contemporary stuff. He's more recent stuff. You know, the last 20 years has been more um, using um, electric lighting. Um, but it's this sort of this art that has no boundaries. It's it's very much installation art. It certainly has a relationship with architecture, but not a, not a comfortable relationship with architecture by any means.
1: No, and being completely dynamic and changing throughout the day, it's also completely open to interpretation, like if you went there at noon as opposed to sunset, as as the one in Mata, was it? Yeah. Maffra. Mephra Ma- yeah. Kind of showed is that the experience would be completely different, which is interesting because tri- like a lot of traditional art or a lot of art is static. Yeah. Or s- it's the same. And so you can discuss all oh, what you thought of it. But with this, it would be difficult to discuss it because... It's you'd, very much an experience. Yeah, and if you went through at different times of day, someone might say they might not like it. You say, oh, we should have gone back at sunset. It's completely <laughs> different, you know what I mean? Like it's, uh, yeah. it's open
0: more interpretation. Uh, each, is... each, each observer has a unique experience of the art. Correct. So it's not like you can look at the same piece and make a judgment about it. Each person has a different, different perspective of it. Yeah, and it'd be um, hard to
1: say that, oh, I didn't like it and someone else... For you to disagree with that yeah Uh, and
0: look the i guess why we're doing this topic is because it light is really so important to this whole movement and this the inspiration of light in california in the 50s and 60s and 70s as it is today and the sort of lifestyle that you know the optimism the the the, you know that was you know they, they talk lovingly about life in california at that time Um, so light is the medium light is actually the medium and they talk about um you know the artists like vermeer and um you know turner the earlier artists like goya people who painted um light in really subtle ways on the canvas you know and you look at some of the art and just the way in which the sky is depicted with some of these early 17th 18th and 19th century artists and it is really incredible like while they're depicting a scene of you know whatever you know uh, a figurative scene or a a landscape scene the actual depiction of sky and light in the environment is something that was really important to them Um, so they pick up on that uh, you know what, what Robert Irwin describes as the phenomenological experience of light and space, and rather than confining it to a canvas, they're trying to break open the um, the experience of light and space in the environment and try and almost encapsulate uh, the person in that artwork. So it's big art, and it's... Um, really interesting i think you know Uh, uh, perhaps we should talk a little bit about helen Pashkin because helen Pashkin is a woman uh who is working in a similar field her work is doesn't have the bigness of the robert irwin and and we'll get to james terrell in a moment she worked at a she has similar interests you know like uh, she did a lot of work with glass and resins and um these beautiful spheres that um, which is sort of uh, yellow and just hovering in, in space and often um, objects inside of objects mm. that really encourage you to sort of move around the object to actually experience what she's actually portraying.
1: Mm. So very similar ideas in that um, it's, it's a completely dynamic experience. Um, less less influenced by external elements, like a lot of Robert's work is, is you know, uses daylight, um, but Helen's is is more sort of, you know, an an object that's illuminated, and as you move around that object, it it changes its experience for, the viewer, um, which is interesting because it's 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 yeah very similar ideas, and these two artists have sort of come out of the same movement, but they they encapsulate different things
0: yeah her work i think is is um you know she'll have these sort of totem she she often she uses sort of these molds these rather unusual shapes these sort of towers and inside of those towers there'll be an object in, placed inside of it which is lit from above and to sort of understand the sort of space or the the kind of what's inside you you, you don't actually know what's inside she won't tell you what's inside but It's that you experience the light and form of that that space, of Mm. that that sort of sculpture that she's created.
1: Which Um, is all through how light travels through that medium and how it's influenced by maybe something with a denser texture or reflectivity or something that's housed within there and how that interacts with light as you move around it and changes. But, yeah, creating things that aren't quite discernible so it's a similar thing. Is it? It, it plays with this perspective of reality. Or is that object there? Then you move around. You can't see it at all, but you know it's in there somewhere because you just saw it. It plays with your perception of what actually exists.
0: And and, and one of the things she talks about, like when she's both Robert Owen and Helen Pashkin collaborate with 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 other uh, with sort of long time. Um, technicians who understand the sort of uh, material nature that they're working with, um, and and one of the things Helen Pashkin talks about when she does the sort of uh, the the sort of the, the 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 circles, these really large circles that she has to pour onto a onto a template and then polish it, is that these objects have to be absolutely perfect. You know that that a, a slight scratch or a or a speck on that surface actually becomes the focal point um, which she clearly doesn't want she wants to create this kind of glow this sort of um, this almost ethereal sort of experience of light color and space so the level of perfection that they need to uh, to 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 deliver to make these objects really resonate within the space is really important so they spend they talk about, um, you know, when you're doing research, about you know, connecting up with people in industry. Um, she describes a you know, um, you know, particular resin that she was using and trying to get an understanding of how it works uh, and, and having no real luck when she rings up the helpline, apart from anything she's a woman, what she's doing, you know, working with this material. So she drives across the country to go to the factory and meets with the sort of technical people and they kind of work together to actually help her actually deliver the art. So you're getting um, people on the sort of uh, in in sort of the industries working with artists and also working with scientists to create these objects, which is quite different to, you know, what we sort of you know, normally see in art, you know, where we tend you know, they're tending to work with paint and sort of more known artistic um Objects.
1: Well, I think that that generated the movement. Like, without without all of the new materials and, and um, research and development in the other sectors, this art movement wouldn't have developed. So, it, it goes hand in hand. That's what art is. It's about the experimentation. And that's what you can see, I mean, a lot through Helen and through interviews and also reading about her. She's very, like, just tries and tries again and, and houses things within there, we will polish it to see what it looks like. There's so much experimentation mm. which is a, a lot of artwork well, but when you have these, these new um, mediums it, it's really key to developing uh, new ways to understand them I suppose, or to use them as art uh,
0: The reason why I like her work so much is that it, it doesn't have this massive scale to it it's, it's a lot of her objects are kind of, um, you know, the size of a basketball, say, or mm. you know some of the larger pieces are a series of columns that maybe would stretch, say 10, 15 meters, or you know the discs might be say, two meters in diameter and, and they would float against the wall. But she's able to create that very intimate um, understanding of light and space through the objects that she's created. And she seems, you know, compared to say James Turrell and um, Robert Irwin and, and other artists, that she seems to have captured the idea of scale and intimacy far better than some of these other artists, in, in, in my view. Mm. While still dealing with the same topic,
1: I suppose that could be the object objective nature of her artwork. <laughs> True, it's, um, it's much more human scale, and you can walk around it and yeah like yeah a lot of them are sort of basketball or smaller soccer ball
0: or even baseball sized objects the sort of level of perfection that she has to deal with i think is really good and she unlike james terrell where in you know we'll talk about his sky spaces in a minute but you know he sort of creates spaces or or environments where you could essentially be static you know and you experience you know his his um, you know incredible Understanding of light and space, but with Helen Pashkin's work, you actually have to uh, move around it. Um, also, with say someone like Terrell, he's he's he tends to work in these remote areas of uh, the world. You know, whether it's Tasmania or Arizona, with his Roden Crater. Um, you know, Helen Pashkin's work, I guess, is a little bit more accessible. I mean, I'm not trying to compare and contrast. I'm just saying that. The scale of the two works is, is, was something that I really noted. Even though they were dealing with the same topic, they were kind of working uh, at, at really different scales. Hmm.
1: Which I guess uh, Robert Irwin sort of is more... A lot of, most of his works are housed internally. It's interesting that Terrell's works, a lot of them now are externally based or they deal with the internal external environment and transitioning in and out of it.
0: So. so we should talk about mr terrell terrell was uh, i think 20 years younger than um, robert Irwin. they collaborated on a few things um he's he's uh, the 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 kardashians are big fans of his work <laughs> <laughs> kanye west has donated 10 million dollars to uh the completion of the the road and crater which is uh he's probably his most monumental work uh, in in the arizona Desert, which is uh, essentially an uh, an extinct crater, a volcano. Sorry, that he's creating this um, what he terms a um, a, um, a contemporary ruin. You know, where you are brought into contact with the sky, with the moon, and the uh, and um, you know the the, the nighttime sky. Um, he's a phenomenally interesting artist. He His favourite artist when he was studying art was Mark Rothko, you know, the sort of these coloured planes um, that sort of float against uh, the canvas, but he describes seeing um, the real work, you know, the canvas of uh, Mark Rothko as as being disappointing and he preferred the illuminated image the the slide in a lecture lecture theater as being much more compelling than actually seeing the um the actual real artwork so he has this real interest in light his medium is light he has no interest in object or subject he is purely interested in the experience of light and connecting the human body to that um, to that light, force.
1: Mm. I guess it sort of. Well, his earlier work or his first work was the. The church where it was an existing building, and they cut a hole into the ceiling, which is similar to his sky spaces, but it allowed you to sort of sit inside the church and view up into the sky.
0: Well, we should explain that uh, uh, James Terrell is um, a Quaker. Quaker is you know the the sort of what's a quaker <laughs> <laughs> well it's a christian um okay religion but it um places much less emphasis on symbolism they believe very heavily in light in in um very much in the experience of light uh, and being at one with with uh god through the connection of light so there any sort of quaker space religious space is typically a very uh spartan very uh minimal space um where you would sit and contemplate so a very meditative space and kind of you know connect yourself to god um james terrell is brought into that tradition and he has as a child, he would visit uh, his Quaker halls with his grandmother and experience the light. He also describes as a child being in a sort of kind of this little mezzanine space that his father built where he uh, would sit and read or, you know, do whatever. And he would have a, a black curtain sort of surrounding that space and then suddenly, uh, not suddenly, he would pierce. The curtain or the the scrim with holes to kind of create these star-like patterns into the scrim so he's, his whole life is is really connected to the experience of light and space so he was um, associated with Robert Irwin but he really quickly found his own feet and started he talked about um, really seeing light as his medium and has been driving that for the past, gosh, fifty years really. His work is um he's you know, created installations much like Robert Irwin, that fill the whole gallery space.
1: Yeah, definitely. And then Yeah his body of work is enormous. Like he's he's sort of I suppose when I, when we started to look into light and space movement, um, his name popped out very regularly and then sort of moves into less known names. Um, but you can really see how his work has transitioned out of a lot of previous work as well. Um, but as yet yeah, taken it to a whole, a whole another scale. And I suppose that's due to his, um, success as a, as an artist. Which has allowed him to sort of take on the grandeur of what he's doing in, on, you know, like the Roden Crater and um, the Guggenheim installation, which was quite enormous as well, and taking over a space like that.
0: Yeah, know. we should talk a little bit about the Guggenheim, and, and he's kind of create he's created these um, so-called um, sky sky spaces, which are essentially um, planes with a hole cut into them, so they have a Depending on the scale, they can be quite big. Um, where you kind of sit and recline and observe the light, the sky. He talks about by changing the color on the inside of the uh, plane, by changing the color, you actually, he's actually able to change your perception of the night of the sky he talks about the fact that we see the sky as blue but in, and we think of the sky as blue but in reality that blue that we see the sky is something that we what he describes as we ascribe the or we describe the color as blue but we, we give it that color and by changing the colors that are around that um, uh, oculus in a sky space he's actually able to change the way in which we see the sky Mm.
1: yeah so he's definitely I suppose differentiating from other artists he uses a lot of dynamic light within his installations so dynamic as in it will, it will change colour or it will change colour gradually or quickly and through putting that light into a surface that uh, encapsulates or has an oculus to the sky or to the surrounding environment that changes your perception that, that's you know Due to trying to un- also understanding how your eye works and how your eye adjusts and and yeah i suppose it, it definitely leads on from the the similar ideas of challenging your perception
0: of Helen and Robert Irwin as well so he i mean again he's not he's not dealing with subject matter he's not trying to describe a tree or a or a or a face he's purely interested in the experience of light in space and trying to connect. He's not even trying. He's actually doing it. He's, he's connecting people to an experience of light that they otherwise wouldn't um, have. So if you think about if you think about a painting, we see the painting because the light hits the painting and then hits our eye. And then we see the subject matter. So what James Terrell is effectively doing is he's taking the subject matter out of the equation if we use the canvas as the as our analogy the light is hitting the canvas and then hitting our eye but what we're actually seeing is the light so he creates these installations of rooms that are filled with this incredibly intense you know purple and red and orange and green really heavily saturated rooms of light which almost become like um, a light fog i think is what he describes it as and you know it's like it's like you're being bathed in this um in this incredibly intense light and it's i don't know from your point of view um um jackson but the the sort of the evenness of light the 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 sheer intensity of the light is something that you can't even really even see the light source when he does this work is the the sort of technical aspects of it must be just phenomenally good
1: yeah i think definitely in terms of how he's definitely nailed a few cove lights in his lifetime um
0: (laughs) he's nailed a few what sorry cove lights cove lights right (laughs) but he does it pretty well the intensity is incredible don't you think
1: yeah yeah i mean um yeah i think experiencing his work is 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 interesting um and working with light and then experiencing is really interesting as well because you're figuring out what's going on. And um...
0: the, the, the thing that, sh- um, you know, s- speaks to me is the, the level of um, perfection that all of the artists in the light and space movement seem to have. And the way that they're able to deal with scale um, and installations that kind of capture people's imagination um, the one in the guggenheim was a was you know an incredibly popular uh, installation where you know lots and lots of people visited and experienced it. they sort of bathed in light they took photos it's very you know sort of uh, something that was shared a lot sky spaces are really um, much sought after you know there's I think there's eighty two of them in around the world now which is incredible wow um they're all in um you know fairly remote parts of the world but you know in in, in um, universities and and places like that there's one in locally here in tasmania there's also one in in canberra so he's um, had phenomenal success and um if <laughs> something that i really enjoyed watching was um kendall jenner i think it is bought a james terrell artwork for seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars she posts about how much she paid for it essentially it's this kind of elliptical installation into her house it's flush with the what looks to me to be a painted plasterboard wall it's got this kind of purple glow to it it's very beautiful um and uh there was uh you know i was watching it and she was showing all her artwork but she was very proud of the uh the $750,000 James Terrell um, piece that she's got in her house. Anyway, the, the, the video I watched was this other person who essentially did the same thing with $50. She went and bought an Oyster light <laughs> and unstuck. she used a whole lot of LED lights and, and kind of programmed it to sort of have this sort of, you know, very subtle colour changing. I have to say that, <laughs> jokes aside, I mean, I, I was... The thing that kind of struck me was that we do have this really incredible um, experience of light. So the $50 version with, with the opal, with the uh, sort of oyster light which was put on the wall, with the LEDs and the way she programmed it, was incredibly clever. And um, it was kind of calming and uh, you know, did many of the things that James Terrell's work did. And it's, I guess the point of it is is that we have this really incredible connection to light, whether it's, you know, cheap lighting or expensive lighting. We have this kind of really um you know insatiable appetite for light in our lives. Mm. And uh I think, you know, um James Terrell's really harnessed the energy of that through the work that he does. He's, he's captured it in a sort of scale. Um the the technical aspects of it make it you know just so much more um powerful um and he's sort of you know perfecting the work over a long period of time
1: yeah i think it's i mean and we should probably talk about oliver Eliason as well um moving on from james but i mean as, as a whole movement when you when you when you go to galleries now then there's obviously, you know, your traditional art and modern art and things like this as well. But light has definitely, in terms of light installation pieces, whether it's along the lines of Tyrrell or Robert Irwin or Olafur Eliasson, it's become a very popular medium of exploration. I know art has always been, you know, closely related to light. <clears throat> but in terms of the abstraction that light can create um, and your understanding of what something
0: is, Um, So, I always say his name incorrectly, but Eliasson, Oliver Eliasson, he is probably best known for the work in 2003, which was the weather project, which was in the Tate Modern uh, Mm. in London, where essentially he, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, he reflected the um, light off a, a, a huge kind of mirror up in the sky Sorry, in the at the top of the, the the sort of gallery space, and that created this incredible um, orange glow within the um, within the environment. I, may I think have it was some, just a glowing orb. Was it? Sorry, so I may yeah. have got that wrong. But look, the the experience of that light within the space, um, you know, led people to lie on the floor and experience sort of almost bathe themselves in the light. It became, uh, you know, this. 24 hour sunset 24 hour sunset (laughs) the 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 the, the color of the light i think was really important it was a sort of you know it replicated kind of a a sunset or a sunrise but more 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 typically associated with sun the golden hour um the golden golden hour. hour um and it really captured people's attention it really brought a whole lot of people to the gallery that otherwise wouldn't and it's that i think it's that direct experience of the art itself so it kind of you have your own experience of the art. The art, uh, the art is, you know, the the experience. It's not the representation of something which you interpret. It's that your experience and your experience alone is what the artwork is. Mm-hmm. So it kind of, you know, going back to what Robert Irwin was saying is, is, is it takes the subject and the object out of the art and creates this experience of. The the environment. Mm.
1: I guess that's why it's we both found it completely fascinating. Is because it's. It, I mean, it sits so close to architecture.
0: Well, it does. And that. But this is the curious thing, Jackson. They all seem to have a rather uneasy relationship with architects. They don't. Certainly don't talk highly about oh, architects. Really? <laughs> um, yeah. And I haven't quite got to the nub of it. But they almost don't acknowledge architecture. They they do. Robert Owen talks disparagingly about uh, the Bilbao by Frank Gehry. He describes it as not a a gallery. He describes it as a tourist attraction and he thinks that, you know, he, he sort of, he doesn't think highly of it. He also... There's I, a, I think...
1: Just going to butt in there. I'd love yeah. to see what Robert Irwin would do. <laughs> way, well, that's he right. Would cut holes in it or take things off. Well, of he,
0: he, he, they do talk about the limitations of galleries, that they can't do the sort of things that they want to do in galleries. They seem to have more... They seem to enjoy abandoned buildings more so than they do gallery spaces. Um, mm and gallery owners, you know, you know, um, you know, the the work is is highly sought after now. But how you actually, how well, you actually you actually have a collection of Robert Irwin works, is a it's bit tricky nowadays.
1: Interesting, because I mean, definitely Robert Irwin's work was a renovation of an old, like he he's renovated buildings and then created. Um, an internal external experience with a building he does through, yeah. through an installation and then i mean james Turrell's like even a step further and that mm. he's actually creating his own spaces now as, well, an, as an experience we
0: should talk about the rodents the rodent crater which is just you know he's he's been working on it for, I, I don't know it's cost he talks about the cost of it being two marriages and uh and a relationship you know he it's a farm it's a in arizona it's a part of a, a desert but they run a cattle farm to help the way but it's this incredible um space which you know i would imagine costs quite a lot to actually get to it's not finished yet um but you know it's, it's getting there um but it's this extraordinary experience of connecting the spectator who travels to the crater it's lifted off the ground so you kind of connected closer to the sky and it's a very, you know, it's a, it's sort of an architectural experience on one level, but it's very orchestrated. Um, regulations had to be changed in order for him to do the work. And he said that within the building code of Arizona, they've actually got this new category called land art. So some ah. of the, the accessibility requirements and fire requirements were, um, shall we say, put to one side for, in order for this sort of work to be created. So...
1: Which is really interesting, isn't it? because yeah you do you do look at these internal spaces and you're like, where
0: are the sprinklers? <laughs> where are the sp- Yeah, so they get to do things that architects, I suppose, wish they could. and there are architects who I think are heavily influenced by this work. I think of you know today Oando in Japan, you know he's um, and you know others that have this sort of very abstract, very planar, very modern sort of architectural um, experience. but when you're dealing with light and space, you sort of you're not having to deal with the functional. You're not having to put in toilets. You're not having to put in uh, kitchens and fire exits and mm. you know those sorts of things. So they can kind of host their work. The light and space art, um, artists can host their work in another person's space. I don't know whether they can necessarily create the space, um, you know, James Terrell has, to his credit. Um, Is it
1: based on, I suppose, being a more temporary temporary space? It's not a habitable uh, space? Yeah,
0: there does seem to be, even though it could stay there for a year or two years or 10 years or 20 years, there there does seem to be a a temporiness about it.
1: I mean, sorry, I mean, temporary is in the nature that you're there. Like, you're there... for the experience for a temporary period. Possibly. You're not going there to, to live.
0: <clears throat> it it's sort of I think the reason why I found this work, you know, so interesting is that um it, it picks up on what we all experience, which is that I mean I'm often sort of I'm sure other people are like this, you know, the the, the, the smattering of light that comes through a you know, a, a, the window say in my office or at home through you know maybe through uh, a tree and you get that beautiful pattern of light on the ground or on the wall might be just momentary because a, a car has driven past and you get that reflection off the car onto the interior walls um i think we've all kind of seen specks of dust lit by the by the sun at various times when we're just sort of you know gazing you know into nothingness you know, it it kind of picks up onto that experience that we all have of light and space. Mm. Am I wrong there, Jackson, or is it just me?
1: No, it's yeah, completely, completely right. It's it's something that's endlessly fascinating, and um, I, I mean, it goes in hand in hand with this whole sort of changing what you perceive something to be within. Are within reality so the sky is such a is such a critical one or such a is such a key one because we all believe what we see in the sky is, is to be real or how we understand it mm-hmm. but if you put a box around it then you you apply it in a different color then it changes your perception of that yeah,
0: that's exactly right so, we, we are actually you, you, you've hit the nail right on the head it, it, it's it, it's playing with our perception of reality we think of reality as being external to who we are like it's somehow out there but what James Terrell and um, pa- Helen Pashkin and, and uh, Robert Irwin are actually sort of telling us is that we actually create that perception we actually create that reality through our perception of the environment
1: mm. that's you said it. Very eloquently thank you but I'm also gonna add it's an interesting time to have that understanding (laughs) with what's going on in the world and everything now it's like you you know are you going to
0: become an anti-vaxxer on on our podcast no I'm
1: not saying anything about that I'm just saying it's like it's an interesting time to 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 view on how what your perception of our reality is in other ways as well and how how you go about understanding the world around you the people around well
0: you. we can talk about that I, I i think perhaps before we leave these three individuals um you would have to say a lot of their work is sort of meditative it's it's minimalist it's uh it's 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 uh fairly spare work it's uh very geometric um and you know light air space and all those sorts of things so it's this kind of
1: spherical square yeah. elliptical
0: yeah Kind of, you know. And there are other artists who are working in this space. Um, so there is certainly this meditative thing, which is how they talk about changing your perception of reality. And, and um, James Terrell talks about having low levels of light, which when, um, when you have low levels of light, your eye actually opens, the, the iris opens, and it allows you to see much more... Strangely enough you you see much more subtle plays of light and space when when you actually lower the level of light in a space um so he talks about light having feeling the light. I guess why I'm talking about this is that this there is this sort of meditative um reality to the work that that all of these artists uh create in my opinion, and I suppose what has become apparent through the whole COVID experience is that we've had to learn to appreciate the simple things in life. Um, Because if we think about sort of, you know, the modern society with a lot of, you know, it's a fairly consumer-led society that we live in, which is, uh, you know, blingy, you know, something sort of, calling for our attention over here be it you know type of food or art or a technology or whatever Mm. so the you know the the i think what is so beautiful about this work is that it does ask us to slow down and appreciate you know what we can actually all experience without the art
1: yeah 100 percent. i think we need more spaces that facilitate that anthony and i mean just looking at yeah some of James's spaces here it's like a gallery a gallery for me is a, is a really difficult thing to enjoy now unless it's like really early in the morning or if it's really quiet there because all of these spaces are they they are a form of meditation so when you're in there and there's there's only a few people or people are quiet then you have a totally different experience and that's what we we need more in our lives right now we need spaces like this which traditionally we had i suppose with churches and other buildings
0: yeah there's a very strong sort of i mean i suppose with james Terrell it's it's sort of obvious there is this um there is this lineage between you know religious experience i mean he talks about stonehenge he talks about the pyramids he talks about these kind of contemplative spaces and and you know, his work does have a kind of religious um, aspect to it. There's no doubt about that. You know, they're reverent. There's a sort of reverence about the space. Less so, I think, with um, Robert Irwin's work and Helen Pashkin's work. But certainly with Terrell's work, you see it.
1: Mm. That's why having more of them in the external environment or within public place, I think's is important. Because when these works are housed in a gallery, the the experience of meditation is rare because Mm -hmm. our galleries now so like every time you go to the gallery if there's a major exhibition on like if Terrell comes to Melbourne or something like that it's it would be it would be completely full like every single day (laughs) so experiencing these works and
0: um, you mean sort of like encountering the work yeah and
1: regeneration yeah. like you're bringing it back to what we need right now it's like yeah sitting in some of these spaces in a quiet environment and just observing the sky mm. could, it could is, is, it could you know really help a lot of people in terms of a form of meditation or a form of rejuvenation
0: yeah I, I, look I, I do agree with that because I think in some ways we're sold religion we're sold meditation as a process of kind of, you know, finding some, you know, better self, some higher self, whether it be through yoga, um, you know, but it is interesting to see art and architecture, I'll I'll use architecture loosely, um, to kind of not drive behavior, but just almost invite the spectator or the viewer or the observer to have their own experience of that space. I think that's probably the thing I enjoy the most about the work is that each person has their own very unique experience of it, which is not prescribed by the artist, by the gallery or by anyone. So, and there is an experience there. There is, there is something that captures your attention and captures your, your, I mean, otherwise the work wouldn't be as popular, I suppose.
1: Mm. And how we experience space currently especially external space when we're in lockdown or we're self isolating within public space and things like this as well I think is, is changing so you know remembering how we'd walk through these spaces in a gallery and how we'll walk through them in a the future or how we experience these spaces could could quite like could quite could be quite different to what we've had available to us in the past moving forward so it's
0: coming. I, be- I find it intriguing that you know Kanye West is so so in love with uh, with James Terrell and Drake, who's another artist, was um, also really influenced by his work. There is a certain corporateness to. Um, well, I don't know what it is. Is this like I love James Terrell's work, but there is also it is so perfect, isn't it? It's so pure, and it's so aspirational, in in, in some ways that. It it's pretty interesting um I, I suppose that's why i like the work i find the work of uh helen Pashkin and and robert Owen a, a lot more accessible i suppose i find it's not mm. as um you know that james 12 has a has become a you know a big name in the artistic world and the lighting world and everything mm. that
1: i think that's also the use of colored light. you think so well, yeah, because because you can create dynamic environments, or and well, like Robert Irwin's work, well, a lot of it just it uses daylight and the change of daylight and the external environment influencing that space as well, which you know is is limited in its spectrum.
0: I sort of imagine um, Apple adopting James Turrell as their sort of lighting artist. <laughs> you know, like there's a it's something that is very pure and very perfect about the work, but um, that's not to take away from, you know, how good it is. The other thing, um, just, you know, maybe to finish up, is that James Terrell flies a plane a lot in Arizona, his ranch in Arizona. And...
1: So you saying it's not sustainable? No, no, no. <laughs> well,
0: there's that, I suppose. But um, I don't know what their views on sustainability His carbon footprint uh, is enormous because <laughs> um, he's flying all over the world. But he describes that. Uh, he describes, and I mean, I've certainly experienced this, the the view of the earth from a plane seeing the light um yeah it's cool is it's just amazing isn't it and he, he i guess that's his inspiration he calls the cockpit of his plane as his studio and uh you know he 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 tries to sort of capture that kind of experience you know for those of us who don't get to fly a plane every every second day um so i i, I guess as an architect i, I know i guess i'd love just to do spaces that kind of replicate um some of this work but you know the conditions of being an architect is is different we've got sort of constraints that um you know is these artists perhaps you know seem to be able to sidestep you know that that's not not discrediting their work at all i'm sure they've got their own challenges but um You know this sort of very pure architect or pure sort of expression um the lessons for i don't know you as a lighting designer me as an architect what 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 do you take from it jackson um i i mean for
1: me anything that that challenges perception is a positive thing i've always believed that and tried to do that even if it's not what i believe it's, it's about, you know, if someone's having, yeah, having a different perspective or thinking about your own perspective in another way is never a bad thing.
0: Well, I definitely think this work does that. I mean, it certainly changes the way you view art as at an absolute minimum, but it also, perhaps, I don't know if it changes your perception, but it sort of enhances it in some fashion. It sort of makes you go, oh, you know, someone else's, appreciated the fact that light the play of light on a on a plasterboard wall Mm. is interesting
1: there's so many different levels in which it can be appreciated but also it i mean yeah having experienced a few of his works is that it it does help you understand your eye yes and how your eye works on a really basic level yeah no i
0: completely agree the the science of the eye the Mm. science of light the science of how it all works together is, is incredibly important. So, um, and
1: I think that just having people think about that is a really important thing because we often take our eyes for granted.
0: And they talk about the fact that they're not scientists. They're like James Terrell specifically saying, I'm not a scientist, but they use science to achieve what they want artistically. And Helen Pashkin's the same. She's not, she's not an industrial designer or an industrial chemist but she's using the techniques of that science to produce the work. And there is this really lovely, I think, especially in the early days, when the, that collaboration that existed between the art and the the more scientific or technical aspects, um, they they become... They work hand-in-hand hand with each other. That certainly has... Um, some application in architecture as far as I can see where we're constantly needing to know what materials can and can't do and we're always looking for sort of new ways in which materials can be expressed in architecture so um, maybe we'll leave it there but I just um, I just want to say that you know with the light and space movement it's like I found my tribe I want to be I wish I was in the 60s I wish I was Living in, in California in the sixties with, with these really cool dudes, you Other know. Like right serving. now it seems like a pretty good place to be. <laughs> it to does. Be. Right now it seems like a good place to be, and um, it must have been very exciting back then. You know the the, the sort of lifestyle that um, I don't know of many um, Australian light and space practitioners. Maybe I'll be the first. Maybe I'll try and be the first. I don't know, but um, um, I really appreciated. Um, appreciated the generosity with the way in which a lot of these artists actually work, the way they share knowledge. Particularly Robert Irwin and Helen Pashkin, and I believe Oliver Ellison is also very much about um, sharing the sort of techniques that he applies to his art. Probably Terrell's a bit more guarded, but um, yeah, it they does seem, seem quite to genuine gen- too. Yeah, in their so, essence. So, so uh, we'll. We'll post some images in case Mm. you're wondering what we're talking about. It's been so
1: long since we've posted an images. (laughs) We'll definitely post some of Robert Urban's work, the two works that we're talking about. Um, Of Helen Pashkin's work. We'll get a few of Terrell's up there. We'll try and find some ones that maybe are less viewed.
0: And we Um, promise not to take eight months to do our next podcast. Hopefully we haven't lost um, too many of our listenership, but... um, Yeah, that's... uh, Good to be back. Good to be back, yeah. Thanks, Jackson. Cheers, Anthony.